open up to Acts 17. Lord willing, we are going to finish this chapter today as we go through it verse by verse, line by line. And as you're making your way there, I just want to kind of front load or give an example of something we're going to be talking about today. As we've been going through the book of Acts, and you kind of see these uh, repeated instances of Paul or other of the uh, saints or other of the, the Christians preaching God's word and these like these great responses basically where it shows like tons of people like getting saved as a result of hearing God's word. How many of you at some point just kind of look at that and go like, huh, that's not really what it looks like in my life. <laughs> like, I mean, dare I say that you've probably experienced, I've experienced this, but you've experienced like me that there's probably far more people that don't automatically believe or just like, yeah, tell me how I must be saved and, and, and accept the good news that you get to share with them right off the bat as you kind of see in a lot of over and over again in Acts, there's probably far pe- more few, there's far more people that don't receive it than do. Would you guys agree with that? Have you experienced that? All right. And, and I'm pointing this out because what I hope to do is to encourage you that you are not some pathetic loser because that's how it is. Okay. Actually, knowing God's word tells us, if we know it, it tells us that that is actually quite normal. Okay, Jesus himself says in Matthew 7, 13 through 14, you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow and the road is difficult and only a few ever find it. So Jesus himself made it sound like or told us that by and far, it's going to be the, the minority of the people that actually choose to receive the good news. And I think the other thing you have to remember is the book of Acts is in a lot of ways like a highlight reel, right? I mean, it's, it's like the, the emphasis is on the good news being preached and the people receiving it and getting saved. But we also have to remember that with all those people that got saved, there must have been a lot of people that didn't get saved because there's also great persecution that comes from those people that aren't receiving it, right? So much so that the Christians get run out of town, or at least Paul does, and, and the people that are kind of at the head of the work that's going on. So there's tons of people that aren't getting saved as well. And in today's text, we're going to see a great example of kind of the opposite. I want to really highlight it because it, it's kind of one of the rare instances that's recorded. I'm sure there were other instances of this, but it's a, it's a, it's a recorded instance where Paul, by all accounts, does nothing wrong, gives a great presentation of who God is, points people to Jesus, but based off of the the number of people that receive it, it would seem to be his the least effective sermon. Like basically that the fruit doesn't appear to be very great from it, all right? So even the Apostle Paul, as great and smart and holy as he was or appears to be, he even had these times where basically... People just were not listening to the truth of God's word when he was presenting it to them, not receiving it, at least at first. Amen? All right? So when that we go through that, it shouldn't shock us. It shouldn't discourage us. But on the flip side, whereas he might have been disappointed, surely he was disappointed because he wanted to see people get saved and believe in Jesus, but he's not discouraged. All right? John Slivkoff gave a great word on this yesterday at a, a Devo or a, for a Devo at a breakfast we had for our home church leaders. But basically it was right along the lines of what I was trying to point out today in that when those things happen that aren't what we would prefer, the important thing is that we might be disappointed and that's okay, but we don't get discouraged. And the reason we know that Paul isn't discouraged is because he doesn't quit. He doesn't stop. He just moves on and keeps going keeps staying faithful, does doing the, the commission that Jesus gave him, and that was to tell people the good news. He's not responsible for whether they believe it or not, but just continue to faithfully tell people the good news. And that's the exact route, response that you and me should have. Whether people believe it or not, we just keep being faithful to do what God has told us to do. Amen? And then we leave the results up to him. We 
may be disappointed, but we don't let them discourage us. All right, so we left off in Acts 17 with Paul in Athens. And in response, if you remember, he sees all these people worshiping all these idols, worshiping uh, pleasure, worshiping uh, knowledge, and, and, and all these other things, just like a very worldly place. And it provokes him, or he's like, has compassion on these people, and it provokes him to want to have conversations with them about Jesus, about what he knew they truly needed more than any of these other things that they weren't finding what they were looking for in. And because he had this new teaching, them being interested in new religions and new lines of thinking, new philosophies, they hear this new thing he's teaching about Jesus and his resurrection, and they're intrigued by it, and they invite him to come and share at this place called the Areopagus, which was basically, if, you, if you've been to Greece before, you, it's still the, the ruins are still there. It's this kind of place in the center of town on this hill, this Colosseum-looking type thing, where basically all the, the people of high society, all the most in, people that were considered the most intelligent and, and, and knew the most, the most well-traveled, they'd all come together and they'd talk about things um, like religion and, and, and in, into, uh, you know, philosophies and, and education, whatever it might be. They talk about whatever was in the news, whatever the latest thing was. And, and so they invite him to come and share with them this new teaching. And so that's where we're going to pick it up in verse 22. Let me read through the whole thing, and then I will pray. And uh, actually, since it's a, it's a big chunk today, so let me just go ahead and pray, and then we'll kind of go through it. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, Again, thank you so much for your word, Lord. This chapter, and again, just acting as another great example for us of something that we experience so often in this world, people that have a misunderstanding of who God is. And I love how it just so simply breaks down some of the most important attributes to know about you Basically what the whole Bible explains, but Paul breaks it down in like four or five verses. And these are things that we've come to believe. Surely us having misunderstandings before we were told these things, but that we've come to believe and we've seen to be true in our own lives and that we wish for other people to know as well. Because there's great comfort in knowing these truths about you. So I pray that we would all be encouraged in who you are we are reminded of that today and then maybe for some of us today we'd be we'd be given the understanding paul's trying to give these people of who you really are if we have misunderstandings of that lord in jesus name amen god bless you whoever sneezed over there all right right. verse 22 so paul standing in the midst of the areopagus said men of athens I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. So Paul, he's walking through Athens. Again, he's, he's, he's provoked because he's, he's really just paying attention to everyone and he sees all these, these temples, all these uh, false idols. He sees their their love for uh, culture and education and philosophy and and just sees all this idolatry, all these little gods that they're worshiping. And he says, well, you guys are really religious people. And now let me just point out the dictionary definition of religion so we're kind of on the same page. There's actually two, two definitions I want to point out. The first being religion is the belief in and worship of a superhuman controlling power, especially a personal God or gods. Okay, that's one line of thinking is is involves what religion is. And then the other line is that it's a pursuit or interest to which someone ascribes supreme importance. All right, so that's where it it can be like a, a thing in life, something that is the driving force in your life that that guides your decisions, the why, the why you, it's raised to a point of worship and everything in your life revolves around it. That can be a, a God with a little G or an idol in your life as well. So he sees this and he says, you guys are religious. Religious. I see worship all around me. You, you guys are worshiping all these gods and idols. For the Epicureans, it was pleasure. For the Stoics, it was uh, morality. For the philosophers, it was education. 
And for many other people, it was all these 3,000 plus temples where they were worshiping all these false gods. And he just observes there's no shortage of religion in you guys. There's no shortage of gods that you guys are worshiping. They even, they even have an altar for this unknown god. You know, basically acknowledging like, well, there's, there's something more out there. And, and just so we get it all, we, we have this altar to worship that, that god we haven't recognized yet. And as I was reading this, I was thinking how in my own life, I've experienced the same thing Paul is seeing here in that when I meet people to some degree, whether they admit it or not, everybody is religious. Okay. Have you guys, would you guys agree with that to some degree, you know, with those definitions I've experienced and, 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 you know, some people are kind of defensible on that if they don't believe in God, because they automatically assume religion with believing in God, and they would say, I, I, I'm not religious. I don't believe in God. And usually I've had discussions with people, and I, I try to always get to a place where they can, where I can relate to what they're saying, something maybe I, I experienced before I believed in God or before I came to know Jesus. And I like to challenge them with questions like, okay, well, you don't believe in God, but what's that controlling power in your life what's that thing that guides your decisions what's that thing that defines what's right and wrong that what's where, what where is your morality established and some people would say well that's myself i i make that mind up i decide what's right and wrong i know what's good and i know what's bad and then what i like to point out to him well you're religious then it's not that you're not religious it's just that you're god or the one you worship or you can consider the supreme authority in your life is yourself that's as simple as that. And trust me, in our flesh, we all can struggle with that at times, right? That can be our tendency. And if it isn't that, there more times than not is often something that's very obvious that the further I talk to them, that is the thing that is dictating why they're doing what they're doing, why they believe what they believe, the thing that their life re- revolves around to the point of it's really a center of worship in their lives. We all having this instinct to worship something naturally that is there to lead you to the one that created you that deserves your worship. All right. That's the way God. It's like God ingrained it in you to lead you to him. Okay. And all other things in this life will never satisfy you the way that he can so that you're always feeling like you need something more. Again, the point of that being to lead you to him. And that is where Paul is starting here to try to get these people thinking in that direction. And by having this unaffiliated altar mentioned in verse 23, they're basically even acknowledging that, well, we clearly haven't found everything we're looking for in the things we're worshiping because there's, we understand that even if it's subconsciously, there is something more. There must be something more. So here's our altar to worship whatever that thing is. And he approaches this conversation with the Athenians very differently than he does with the Jewish people at the synagogues, right? Because how would he often start the conversations with them? He'd basically go to the word of God because they knew the word of God. And he would explain to them the scriptures to, to create this this bridge. Like, oh, I know what you believe too. And he would use that to establish that they were talking about Jesus so that they could see that that was who the Messiah was. But with these folks, he's giving them a reason to listen to what he has to say or finding a way to relate to them by showing them that you're obviously seeking something and I have the answer to what it is that you're seeking. To intrigue them to listen to what he's about to say, which is to give them the good news of the gospel. And it being a great example for us in how to start a conversation with somebody about Jesus, all right? Because we all once were unbelievers, right? We all were. We didn't, we weren't born a Christian. You had to willingly make that choice to place your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So we can all relate to how we were before we believed in him. To having those same struggles as unbelievers. To looking to those same things and being disappointed and wanting and never being satisfied to we found Jesus. So we have all these ways to, in a sense, create this bridge 
or this way to relate so they we can relate to them and they can understand what we're we're saying or, or like so we can use basically our personal testimony to relate to other people just like paul's doing right here okay to get them thinking and listening about what we're saying i think of like um for many years before i became lead pastor here i served in the young adult ministry i pastored that group for like eight or nine years and that came from a natural burden God produced in me because I got saved at that age. And so I got saved out of all these things that I was trying to find peace and acceptance in and you know fulfillment in that just left me wanting and disappointed until I found Jesus. And so that's often where I would start in my conversations, understanding that they were looking to these same things and they were trying to find purpose and identity that I had once struggled with and didn't find till i found the lord and so that's where i would start i would try to create that bridge and relate to them in that way the same way paul is like i know how that feels i know exactly what it feels like to look for something in these things but guess what i didn't find it but here's the thing i found it now and here's who that person is it's jesus christ and we can all do that every single one of us all right, we've been given these unique testimonies to relate to people being where they were once. And that's exactly what he's doing here, okay? And it goes on to say, what therefore, Paul says, what therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. I love this. Or like what you think or who you think is unknowable, he actually is knowable and I know him and I can introduce you to him. And he says in verse 24, the God, that's important. I'll go back to that. Who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, or he's the one that's sustaining everything in this universe, including you. He made from one man, that would be Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he actually is not far away from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Now, Paul gives a very clear and concise presentation. Like I said, one of the most like, like structurally sound presentations of who God is and of his desire to have a relationship with us here in this message to the Athenians. The reason being that he just sees in all of their idolatry that you guys have a misunderstanding of who God is. And I'm going to explain to you who he really is because at the end of the day, you have to come to believe this yourself. You are uninformed, and I'm going to inform you so that you can know and truly believe in the one and only true God. All right? And if you're here today or if you're watching online and you're somebody that maybe you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, a follower of Jesus, if you're somebody that's kind of still at this point of trying to figure out who God is, or you have questions, I encourage you to listen up because as I said at the beginning, Paul very eloquently puts into four or five verses what this whole Bible explains to us about who our God is, okay? And the first thing he points out is that there is only one God. These guys had, like I said, over 3,000 temples representing 3,000 plus different gods, confused as heck as to who they should worship. And he's like, guys, God didn't make it hard for you. There's only one God, as he refers to him singular in verse 24. Again, the Athenians believe in many different ones, but Paul's saying there's one. That's not true. You you need to correct your thinking. There's only one. And people today, where they might be more prone to believing in a single God, what they often say is, there's many paths to him. Because all religions are basically pointing to the same God that's wrong all right and honestly it it doesn't take much to understand that if you do any type of like truthful research they're not saying the same thing they're all different other than that every other religion than christianity has requirements 
or tells you what you need to do to either get to God or to become like him. Whereas Christianity is unique. God's word is unique in that it says you can't do anything to get to God. It's all about what he did to get to you. So all you have to do is believe in his son Jesus who he sent to die on a cross to pay the price, the just price required, the penalty for your evil, your sins in your life so you could be forgiven of them and made right in his eyes and spend eternity with him. Amen? That's the gospel really summed up. But that's who God is. And because of that, Jesus tells us in John 14, 6, I in the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. One God and one way to him, and that is through Jesus. He is the way to God. He reveals the truth of God. And he is the one that gives this way to eternal life with God. Now, some people in the world would look at that and say, well, that's really narrow-minded. That's just not very accepting to say that. And I just, I always, I always, it baffles me that when people would say that because what we're talking about here is that there is this horrible disease that leads to death, all right? Being sin. Sin's a guaranteed death sentence. That's the wages of sin is death. It leads to separation from God. And if we die in our sin or we die guilty of our sin, then we are separated God from eternity. Nothing can undo that. That's what the Bible says. So it is the worst of all sicknesses, if you will. But we've been given a cure. We've been given an absolute cure, which God has totally produced and done everything. So all you need to do is receive it and you're cured. I mean, if we take any other disease in this world, if we take like a horrible disease like cancer, And we go like, yeah, there's a lot of treatments, but this is a cure. So take this because this will 100% cure you and make you well. Would you say, that's very narrow-minded. I don't like that. What do you mean? This is the way to be made well. Take it, please. That's basically what like God's saying. It's like, no, no, this is the way to be made well. This, This is why it's good news. That's why it's gospel. It's not bad news. One God... One way to know him. Second thing he says, God is, or he says, who made the world and everything in it. He goes on to say, that's who God is. The one who made the world and everything. So God's the creator of all things. Genesis 1.1, the very first verse in the Bible. If you can believe that, you can believe the rest. But I always tell people, that's where you start. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, earth and everything outside of earth, the whole entire universe. God created it. That's simple. In the beginning, meaning that he's not part of the creation. He was already here. God is the I am as in he's he's like forever. He's eternal. He's always has been. He is the one that has created everything. Okay, and that's important to get to because he's not like anything else in that way. He is the one that has made us, this earth, and everything in this universe. Some of the Greek philosophers like the Stoics teaching that, well, God's more like an energy. He's just in all of the matter and everything in the the universe. It's made up of God. He's like a force. He's like, you know, just all around us. But Paul's saying, no, no, that's not it. Actually, he's a he. Or as Genesis 1.27 tells us, that we are made in his image. It's not that... He, we are the same as God in the sense that he is much greater than us because we are the creation, he is the creator. But in some way, we are like him in that he is a person or he's personable. Okay, he's not an it. The popular theory in the world today being that there was just one random big bang and the universe and life just by chance came together out of that and evolved into what we see today. That widely being accepted as truth, even though if you really look into it, it's filled with theories that contradict and lack evidence. I saw that. I remember even before I was saved in college and they're explaining these principles in, in upper division biology because I started out as pre-med. I went into engineering, but they're explaining these principles in physics and biology 
in chemistry and they're they always would get somewhere and go like, yeah, we, we don't really know how this works. We don't know, like, yes, you know, everything, you know, cre- or evolution, it all started with matter coming together, even though that violates like the very first principle of, of physics or like that matter is made up of opposing atoms that want to oppose and, and, and rebel from each other and explode, but somehow they're being held together. I'll get to the verse that tells us what's holding them together in a second. But it's like, it's like you'd hear stuff like that and I'm like, I mean, I'm not just like, like a super scientist, but I'm just like that, that, contra- that doesn't make sense. I'm like, how can you be okay with that? Come to find out the Bible tells us these things, right? But the more you look at the complexity of creation, the greater evidence you have that there has to be an intelligent creator behind it. It can't just be accidental. And Paul tells him he's the Lord of heaven and earth or that God is sovereign. He's in control of everything happening on this earth and everything in the heavens. Many of these people here and many people today think like if there is a God, he's obviously not like interested in humans he's too busy or he's too great and he has nothing to do with us and everything's just it's either by chance or just kind of you know like we're setting the dictating what's going on throughout history but he's basically saying no that's actually not the case he's like he's in control he's sovereign nothing is happening that he isn't allowing he is the one that is sustaining and keeping everything going all at once goes on to tell him that God doesn't live in temples made by man or that God cannot be confined or that he's can't be put in a box. He's bigger than you could ever comprehend him fully. He can't be put in a place, which again, these people thought that they were doing God a favor by building him a temple to live in so that they he could reside there and they could come and worship and they could come and serve him there. But the psalmist tells us in Psalm 139 that God is everywhere at all times. It says in Psalm 139, 7 through 12, I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I go down to the grave, you are there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the furthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night, but even in the darkness, I cannot hide from you. So much assurance in that. The God who says he loves you and he'll never forsake you or leave you, that he's only got good plans for you, you never escape his presence. He's always with you. Paul then saying in verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though as he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. I love this. Basically, he says God does not need us, but rather we need him. We are not his provider, but rather he is ours. He needs nothing from us. Rather, he is the giver of every good thing in your life, according to James 1.17. The ultimate gift he gave was his son out of his great love, or as it says in John 3.16, because he so loved us so that we could be forgiven of our sin. Anything that God tells us to do in his word, we have to understand right off the bat, it's not because somehow he needs you to do it to bless him or for his benefit it's because you need to do it for your benefit and to bless you and that's critical to understand that point because really it helps you approach things that are supposed to be like sinners of a, a follower of jesus life like serving and being generous and showing forgiveness and mercy god's not telling you that because he needs you to do it for his benefit he's telling you these things because it most certainly will benefit you in some way. And that's important to understand. Many of them, uh, many of the Athenians believe that their gods were like empowered by or dependent on people's worship or offerings or that if they wanted something done, they needed people to do it on their behalf. But Paul's saying that's not the case with the one and only true God. He's got no shortage of power. He can do everything he wants. The worship of God or the worship God desires not coming out of a place of need in sense that God doesn't need us to make him feel good. He knows he's awesome. Not in a prideful way. He just is awesome. But he wants your worship to come out of the loving relationship you have with him. Just as kind of you cherish and worship your family because of the love you have with them, but even to a greater degree, through that relationship you have with him and you see how awesome and how loving and how great and how good he's been to you, It produces this heart of worship. That's where he wants it to come from. 
He goes on to say uh, that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place. Or that God, from the beginning of time, has been the ruler of mankind. Since we all descended from the first person he created, that being Adam, we've all been under his authority. So he's the one that, as we see in the beginning in Genesis, confused tongues and spread people out over the world and established countries and boundaries and, and lifts up kings and lowers kings and, and establishes rules and reigns. It's God that's in control of all of that. And that's a sort of great comfort when you see like the world in peril like you do today, right? When you see this horrible war going on in the Ukraine and the atrocities over there, or you hear the rumors of war and people getting nukes and about ready, God's in control. God's in control. That doesn't mean he's responsible for evil. As I've said before, sin is what's causing the evil going on in the world. But God is so great that he is powerful enough to use even the sin of mankind to accomplish his perfect, good, and pleasing plan in the end. Amen? Nothing is thwarting his plan. And for the Christian, this is the greatest thing. Because, you know, often we look at jobs. I was thinking about this this morning. We look at jobs and, and we get these, like, like one of the things that can be a deciding factor is a benefit package, right? And like we get things like health insurance or life insurance. Well, here's the thing. You don't need insurance with God. What you get is an assurance plan. Okay? <laughs> No, seriously, you don't need life insurance. You have life assurance, Jody, and that death has no power over you. All right. You don't need health insurance because you have health assurance knowing that one day you ain't going to be sick no more. or Have to deal with a broken body. All right. That's the reality. I thought that was good. I was thinking of that this morning. I was like, yeah, I was saying amen to myself. I was like, preach. <laughs> anyways but seriously there's so much assurance knowing that god is ruling and reigning there's so much security in that you hear of all these things that are making the world fearful and i'm thinking i'm going to talk about this more in thursday night or prophecy update but we don't fear because we have promises that assure us everything is going to be okay amen and lastly but most importantly the purpose of all that he has done is that people should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, as Paul says in verse 7. Or that God desires to know you. Isn't that crazy? It's not about knowing a religion like we talked about last week. It's not about head knowledge. It's about having a relationship with your creator, which would have been a crazy idea. These guys, again, they thought God, if, if they even believed in God, they thought that, man, they're just up there doing their thing. They're too great for us. They don't want anything to do with humans. And yet Paul's saying that's wrong. Actually, God wants everything to do with you. Like he says in Romans 1, his creation reveals to us that there most certainly is a creator. Romans 1.20 says, for ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky through everything God made. They can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. And as such, that's what he's saying there in verse 27. He hasn't hidden himself from you. Rather, he's given you all the proof you need to know that he's real so we would look for him or seek him and guess what he's not far from you as he says in verse 27 also but rather he's made it easy for you to find him through his son jesus he said it tells us in colossians 1 15 through 20 christ is the visible image of the invisible god he existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation for through him God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. You want to know what's holding everything together? It's Jesus. Christ is also the head of the church which is his body. He is the beginning, 
supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything for God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by the means of Christ's blood on the cross. And then he goes on to quote two of these well-known Greek poets in verse 28, not because they were knowingly speaking on behalf of God, but rather because what he's trying to relate is you guys all know this stuff. What I'm preaching to you, you already know and you affirm whether you believe in God or not. These these truths resonate in you. How many of you guys have noticed that? You watch like a movie like Star Wars, it's good and evil, and you're like, man, there's like biblical themes in this. It's not that there's biblical themes. It's ingrained in us. Or you hear somebody say it, something on the news. It's funny, somebody sent an article to me recently, and it was this really respected, like, um, statistical business person, and he ran all these numbers and was figuring out what the 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 death toll would be of the another world war like what the consequences of that would be and guess what he said would be the death toll worldwide one third of the population now if any of you guys know what bible prophecy says what does it say is going to happen as a result of war as we get into the tribulation one third of the population will die And it's just like, I read things like that all the time. And I'm just like, if you only knew what you were saying, man, I need to have a conversation with you. It's like, it's, it's, we, these principles are in us. And so again, he's, he's relating to them. He's like, you guys already know this. You affirm it. You cherish these poets and they're saying the same thing I'm telling you. Goes on in verse 29, it says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, or basically being those that were created by God, we have a responsibility to understand who he is, which he's telling them, and reject those ideas that are incorrect, such as thinking that somehow you can capture God's awesomeness in like a little figurine. He's like, you can't capture it. I can't. I could hire the best artist in this whole world and say, paint a picture of my wife and it would never capture her beauty. All right. Because it's not the real thing. I mean, do you guys see what I'm saying? It's just a painting. And he said, you can't capture God's glory and awesomeness in this little statue. And as I was reading that, I was thinking, man, that's 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 a there's some denominations of Christianity that still do that. They use idols and icons to worship God. And it's like, read the word. It's like, you can't capture God's awesomeness in that. You may think they help you worship God, but no, they're an inferior product. You just need to worship God. Amen? It says in verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, this being Jesus, because John 5.22 says the Father has committed all judgment to him. So he has... He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. These Athenians acknowledging first that they were ignorant or they didn't know everything there was to know about God by having this this idol that was to an unknown God. And now Paul's confirming it because he's confronting the very things that they believe that were wrong about God. And then he goes on to say, though, in verse 30, he says, God, in his great grace, he's overlooked your ignorance up to this point. He's not mad at you. All right. But now, since you've been told the truth, you have no excuse to keep being ignorant. All right. You've heard the truth. Hearing the truth demanded a response. And the only reasonable reaction was repent. Which isn't a bad word. It just means quit going away from God in all these meaningless, empty things and turn and go towards him through faith in his son. And he goes on to say, Jesus's resurrection from the dead is the assurance that what I'm telling you, you should believe in him. The fact that he died and he rose again and he was witnessed by tons of people and that's been affirmed. That's the proof that he was in fact God in the flesh and that you should listen to what he said and you should believe in him. And failure to believe the truth would result in them bringing judgment upon themselves from the righteous judge appointed by God, that that being his son, Jesus, as Paul points out in verse 31. Judgment being something very real. 
And you see here that, like Paul, he's not shying away from giving the Athenians the whole gospel. Basically, in this life, you have one or you have several opportunities, but until the moment you take your last breath, you have the opportunity, just like these guys do, to believe this truth, to not wait. God has not only shown you in creation, but he has, in, through his people, he has preached the good news about him. He's given us his word so we can know exactly who he is, so we have no excuse. And once we've heard it, our job, our responsibility is to receive and believe. And if we choose not to, then we choose to basically go into the next life where we will be judged based off of the things we did in this life that were right right, and the things that we did that were wrong. Basically, our sin or the things we did wrong will remain. And what God demands to be in his presence is perfection. So you will have to stand before him and prove to him that you lived a perfect life, which none of us can do unless we are wrapped in Jesus' righteousness. He lived the perfect life for you and me because we couldn't. And through believing and receiving that gift of forgiveness and salvation, we are made right in God's eyes. Amen? Amen. Again, he's not shying away from the whole gospel. He gives them everything. And, and, and I think that's important, too, because when we're talking to people about Jesus, it's, our, it's his kindness and grace that draws them to repentance. But in order for them to understand how good the good news is, they have to understand how bad the penalty is for sin. Right? That's what makes the good news so good, good, is that we are horrible and wretched, and we didn't deserve to be saved. We didn't deserve God's love. We were in rebellion against God, yet he loved you anyways. And he gave you what you didn't deserve and, and, and did so in the most powerful demonstration of love you could have ever been shown in sending his son to die for you. That's what helps us understand the magnitude of the good news. And that's why judgment has to be taught. And one thing I was thinking of this morning too is I'm so glad that Jesus is my judge. Because what Hebrews 4.15 tells us, it says, This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses. For he, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. What that means is that Jesus understands me in the troubles I have in this life. Whether it's difficulties with believing or, or struggling with sin. He understands all of that because he was put in all those same situations. He didn't give in to sin, but he still experienced those things. So having lived as a man on this earth... He understands my hardships. He understands my pain. He understands my struggles. And you see what I've learned over the years of ministry is that in order to be effective in loving and ministering to others, it helps to understand where they're at. The Lord uses the hard things you go through in life, like the hurts, the pains, the hardships, the suffering, to produce in you the ability to show the attribute, his attributes of compassion and mercy and forgiveness and love towards others because it's much easier to relate to and be sympathetic toward people going through difficulties that where you've sat where they've sat and, and gone through what they've gone through. Instead of the tendency we can have sometimes to be critical or judgmental, which... Again, when we've gone through it, it's easier to be sympathetic to it, all right? Paul actually talks about that in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 7. We don't have time to go through it, but if you want to look it up, he talks about that. But Jesus is our judge. He's a just one. He doesn't make mistakes. He's going to judge us perfectly. But he's also a sympathetic one in understanding our struggles. So rather than being critical and coming down on you, he wants to be there to comfort you and help you through them and out of them. You don't have to doubt that. He's not up there angry. He's not far away. He's right there. If you're willing to let him. Which unfortunately a lot of these Athenians were. It says in verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead. Some mocked. But others said we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed. Among whom also were. Uh, Dionysius and Arapagite. Era and uh, a Rapagite and a woman named uh, Damaris and others with them. So Paul, before he's even finished, they cut him off. Some of them are just like, this is ridiculous, you know, that you're talking about some guy raising from the dead. Others of them are like, well, this is interesting, but I got to think about it. And maybe we'll have you come back and answer questions later, which I just want to point out, that's always a bad move because indecision and believing in Jesus is a decision not to believe in Jesus. 
And you do not know how long you have on this earth to make that decision. Something could happen, Lord forbid, on the way home from here. So when we hear the truth, as he's exhorting these people, we want to believe and receive that truth. But Paul, he ends up leaving as he he was there to tell them about Jesus and they didn't want to hear about him. So they're like, okay, well, then I'll, I'll go. Which is interesting to note because of all the places he's gone so far, this is by far the least amount of persecution for the sake of ease, you would think that he would stay here and keep trying. But it's as if he's, he saw all of their worldliness, just saw that their idolatry was so strong and that there was just no interest in, in having their minds changed from it that he sensed, all right, well, God's not going to force you to believe, so I'll just move on and, and keep telling other people the good news. But not before there were some people. There was fruit, right? There were some people that heard him and did in fact believe and receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Amen? Amen. All right. Well, as the worship team comes up here, here's what I want to end on. Again, this is probably one of the best, at least like from a, a, a thorough perspective, like sermons that Paul gives. All right? He gives a very good description or summation of who God is and the way to get to him through faith in his son, Jesus. Yet it also appears to be the least effective in regards to how many people believe, right? Because other places, it seems like there's tons of people believing, whereas here it seems like there's a few, at least recorded. We don't know for sure. And again, I point that out as an example that we never want to be those that judge our effectiveness in presenting the good news to people by the response you get from them. Because the reality is you can't really know. You can present the gospel is perfect and clear, but they still might not believe in it. And that's not your fault. Actually, Jesus told us in Luke 8, 4 through 15, he gives this parable of soils, right? You guys familiar with this? I don't have time to read it, but what he does is he, he's using this example of a farmer that's kind of like sowing seed, throwing seed, as like that's us telling people the good news. And it falls on these four different types of soils. How many of those soils are actually a good soil where the seed actually goes and runs deep roots and grows into a plant? One, right? A quarter. Of those four soils, there was only one that actually took. Okay? And that's the reality of when we're, like, what we do. We tell people the good news. We don't know what type of soil it falls on. Nor are we to. Only God does. And so we just, our, our mission is to what? Preach the good news. Throw seed. That's your mission. I love how in, in, in Mark 4, 17, when he's calling some of his disciples, he's like, they were fishermen. He's like, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Because if you knew how they fished back then, actually, when I've been to Israel and you go to the Sea of Galilee, they'd go out in these boats and they have these nets. And they just throw the nets. That's one way they fish, at least. They throw the nets out into the water, and then they'd pull them up. And if there were fish where they threw them, they'd pull fish up. But did they know where fish were? No. I mean, there were probably better areas to fish than others. But you still are just kind of like throwing that net out, hoping that there's fish under there. You don't know if you're going to bring up any fish. And that's very much what our mission is. And just because you don't get any fish the first time or the second time, do you stop throwing the net? No. You just keep tossing the net. And you pray and hope that there's fish that are coming up. There's people that are getting saved. You just keep casting the seed to all the people God brings into your your life. Amen? Amen? That's it. And yes, it's okay. We get disappointed when people... Don't believe in the same hope we have because we want them to have the same joy, the same assurance that we have. But we don't get discouraged. We trust that part to God. We keep praying. Maybe in some instances like Paul, we sense that we're not getting nowhere anywhere, so we just move on. Don't want to get in arguments or nothing. We're just, again, we're the bearers of the truth. Whether they want to believe it or not, that's not up to me. You want to disagree? Talk to God. He's the one that says this. I can guarantee you're wrong, but he can defend himself. But it's important to understand that's our mission. So we don't become discouraged and we don't stop. We'd be like Paul. We just keep being faithful and moving on. Amen? Amen. Last but not least, as I said, there might be some people here today that you, don't, you didn't know who God was before you came into the service. Maybe you're watching online. You didn't know who God was. Now you do. 
And God up to this point in his grace has overlooked your ignorance or the fact that you didn't know. But now you know. And now you have the opportunity to know the God that created you, that loved you so much he sent his son to die for you. And my encouragement to you would be the same as Paul's. You need to believe today. What you're looking for is not just like it wasn't for the Athenians in any of those things they were trying to find it in. And that unknown thing that you think still out there, it's been made known. And his name is Jesus Christ. He's made himself known. God is not hiding from you. You can know him and everything about him. I've given you the Cliff Notes version today, but his word tells us. And you can personally know him and have a relationship with him where he's involved in every aspect of your life, leading you through this world, comforting you in ways that you can't be comforted, giving you a hope or sure expectation of good as his child through faith in his son. And you have the opportunity to do that right now. We're going to have our prayer team around the room. If that's you, if you need to do that, come up and get prayer and we will lead you in a prayer. If you're watching online, you can pray to him right where you're at, right in your living room. Say, God, I am a sinner. I, I acknowledge I'm not perfect. And I need Jesus' sacrifice on that cross to pay the price for my sins. I acknowledge I need that. I need you to come into my life and help. Forgive me of my sin and, and then help me live the way you want. Reveal yourself to me. Guide me. I, I understand that I'm searching and I can't find what I'm looking for. I need you. You can do that right now. And you can, maybe you came here not knowing God, but you can leave here as a child of his, knowing him personally. Amen? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, thank you so much that you've made yourself known to us, Lord. It's always so encouraging to just be reminded of that, that we're not just imagining who you are or trying to figure things out. I mean, in a lot of ways, you are bigger than we could ever fully comprehend. But the stuff we needed to know that's important, that helps us understand your character and your goodness and your mercy and your love for us. It's all in here. You've made it known to us and you've personally made it known through your son. You've revealed yourself to us through him and we've experienced in our lives how real you are through him coming into our life and leading and loving us so well. And just as the disciples, when they had the opportunity to leave and they said, where are we gonna go? You have the words of life. You have everything we're looking for. We've experienced that, Lord. Just as we sang early on, we just want to make all the room in our lives for you to take them all over. As John the Baptist prayed, I must decrease so Christ can increase. That's our heart, Lord. And I pray that would be for all of us today in this place as we sing this last song. In Jesus' name, amen.